Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. We appreciate, as always, you listening to the program every week at this same time. The name of the program is Bible Crossfire. That's really a takeoff from an old program on CNN called uh, Crossfire, where they discussed differing points of view politically. Well, this program allows us to discuss differing points of view religiously. I mean, you have a lot of people out there claiming to teach what the Bible says, but they all differ. How could that be so? Two plus two cannot equal four, four and five at the same time. <laughs> How would you know who's right? Well, as we all know, the Bible is going to have to settle what the answers to the questions are. If you want to know what the Bible teaches on gay marriage or women preachers, on whether or not sprinkling babies is really scriptural baptism, you're going to have to turn to the Bible. you got churches on all sides of those questions, but they all can't be right. Either baptism has to be an immersion, and it's for the believers, or baptism is allowed to be sprinkled, sprinkling, and you can baptize babies. The, both of those answers can't be right. Either the Bible teaches that gay marriage is okay, or Romans 1, 26 and 27 is right. That teaches that's a sin. Uh, the Old Testament teaches it's an abomination. Uh, either the Bible teaches that it's okay for women to preach in the church service, or 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 is right. It says it's a shame for women to speak in the church. So not all the answers that the churches and preachers are giving you are right. The Bible decides for us what's right. And that's what this program is all about. We allow discussion on both sides of these religious questions and issues. Call in. Get into the Bible crossfire. The only rule is the Bible settles any question or issue. The Bible is going to tell us what's right. Now, the Bible doesn't speak on every issue. The Bible doesn't tell us what the square root of two is. Okay? So I can't give you a Bible answer if you call in with a question like that. There may be some questions that we think are related to the Bible, but the Bible doesn't reveal the answer. Okay? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. He doesn't tell us everything, but he tells us what we need to know to please him. What we have to do to be saved. How he wants us to worship him. How he wants us to live our everyday life. That's all found in the Bible. In particular, since the Old Testament is no longer binding, it was nailed to the cross, Colossians chapter 2. Verse 14, all of it, the New Testament in particular, tells us what we need to do to please God today. So the New Testament is designed to settle these Bible issues. As the announcer said, if you have a Bible question or comment, call us. The lines are wide open right now. 877-655-6755. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. While we're waiting on our first call, I thought we would discuss a phrase that's in the New Testament at least three times. It's in the it's in close to these words each time. It talks about calling on the name of the Lord. For example, let's start with Romans 10, 13, which reads this way. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So obviously calling on the name of the Lord clearly necessary to salvation but just how does one call upon the name of the Lord? I mean, we better know what it means. We better know how to do it if it's necessary to salvation. But before we answer that question, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Let's prove from this text that salvation does not, I repeat, does not come at the point of faith as most denominational preachers teach. The most people teach all you got to do is accept Jesus Christ. Is your personal Savior, you'll be saved. They mean by that all you got to do is believe in Christ. They teach when you believe you're saved at that point, 
But this text teaches salvation is not at the point of faith. It says you caught a call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And we're going to see from verse 14 that calling upon the name of the Lord comes after one has faith. Let's continue reading into verse 14 then. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, if you go through that backwards, the sequence has to be this way, according to verse 14. First, the preacher preaches. Then the person, the candidate, the person hears. Then the person believes. And then the person calls on the name of the Lord. It says, how can you call on him in whom you have not believed? So you've got to believe first. And then you call upon God. That's the order according to verse 14. Now, that's airtight. You can't change that. Yet many will say that you're saved the moment you believe. But this passage says calling upon the name of the Lord comes after faith that you can't call until you believe first. And verse 13 says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. It comes after you believe. Therefore, you're not saved at the point of faith. You're not saved. When you believe. Now, that's what we call conclusive proof. Now, a lot of people talk about the Bible, and they'll try to talk about how you're saved at the point of faith, but this is absolutely conclusive proof you're not saved at the point of faith. You have to do more than just believe. After you believe, you have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But just what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, if you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call, 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755. Many assume calling upon the name of the Lord means we ask God to save us. And it really does in a sense, but they assume that it's a verbal, like you ask God in prayer verbally to save you. But instead, what we're going to see is the way you call upon God to save you is by your obedience. Let's first showed that possibility with three Old Testament illustrations. Now, my program is only 26 minutes long, so I don't have time to read all of these, but I hope that the audience is familiar with Numbers 21, 5 through 9. The Israelites murmur against God to punish them. God sends poisonous snakes. They're biting the people. The people are dying. They ask God, okay, we're sorry. Please help us. Deliver us from these poisonous snakes. So God asked Moses to make like a little statue of a snake, a bronze serpent, put it up on the pole, and whoever looks upon that serpent on top of the pole will be healed. Now, at that point, let's let's say you're one of those Israelites. You're suffering from a snake bite, and God has said, if you'll look at that bronze serpent on a pole, I'll heal you of your snake bite. At that point, how would you ask God, how would you call upon God to heal you of that snake bite? Well, if you were to ask him verbally in a prayer, he might just reply back theoretically, look, I've already told you what to do to be healed of that snake bite. Look upon the bronze serpent on top of the pole. So the way you would ask God to be healed from your snake bite, the way you would call upon him to be healed of your snake bite would be by doing what he said to be healed of the snake bite. That is, look at that bronze serpent on top of the pole. You see that? If God says, If you'll do A and B, I'll give you the blessing C. Then the way you ask God for C is by doing A and B. Another Old Testament illustration. You remember Naaman had leprosy. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, 
in verses 9 through 14. Again, I won't take the time to read it. I'm hoping you're familiar with the story. Naaman has leprosy. He's not an Israelite. He's actually a, a captain in the army of Syria. But he has evidently some Israelite servants. And they say, the prophet in Israel, Elisha, perhaps he can heal you of this leprosy. So Naaman finds out from Elisha. Yes, I want to be healed of this leprosy. Elisha says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. At first, uh, Naaman becomes mad. He doesn't like the answer, but his servants convince him to acquiesce. Why don't you just go ahead and dip in the Jordan River seven times? Now, at this point, God has told Naaman through Elisha that if you'll dip in the Jordan River seven times, I'll heal you of this leprosy. At that point, how would Naaman ask God, how would Naaman call upon God to heal him of the leprosy? Isn't it obvious? God has said, if you'll dip in the Jordan River seven times, I'll heal you. So the way God, Elisha, excuse me, the way Naaman would call upon God to heal him of his leprosy is not a verbal thing through a prayer. (laughs) It would be by dipping in the Jordan River seven times. And sure enough, when he did dip in the Jordan River seven times, God healed him of the leprosy. If God says, if you'll do A and B, I'll give you the blessing C, then the way you ask him for C is by doing A and B. Mary from California, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Um, My question for you would be, why is it that certain denominations claim that miracles do not happen today? When honestly, I, I believe that I have seen things that do not fit in what is the assumed reasonable worldly thought, okay? Where in the Bible are those? What are your what is your thought about miracles in this day and age? Now, now what we're sa- what we're not saying, Mary, is that when you pray to God, that God never intervenes. For example, if you pray for somebody who's sick, we're not saying that God would never help that sick person. But what we're saying is the miracles, the spiritual gifts you read about, like in the book of 1 Corinthians and other places in the New Testament, the prophecy and the tongues and the miraculous healing that they cease. Now, the passage I would start with to prove that is, Mary, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, which says, Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect or complete is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So Paul is saying sometime future to him, the prophecy and the tongues are going to stop. And he says it's going to happen when that which is perfect is come. Well, if you notice the context, the context is basically saying... The context is basically teaching us that the means by which God revealed his New Testament law and confirmed it, in part, through the prophecy and the tongues and the healings and things like that, that that would be done away when the means by which God revealed his New Testament law in its completion, when it was finally revealed and confirmed, and since that has already happened, then based upon the context of 1 Corinthians 13, we don't have no longer have prophecy in tongues and the miraculous healing. Do you follow what I'm saying, Mary? Yes, I follow what you're saying, 
but I can say that I still, from personal experience, have seen things that are unexplainable. And honestly, uh, people have called upon the name of the Lord. I mean, you just got done talking about what that was what mm-hmm. that is, and um, I'm sometimes the miraculous happens, and it's up to God, and sometimes it's God's preference to not answer exactly as we think we'd like to hear it, you know, or have it occur, which is fine, and when it gets Mary. down, when it gets, okay, you go ahead. Tell me what's, what yeah. this brings to you. Mary, I'm limited in time here. So I have been to Pente- supposedly Pentecostal services where they're healing folks. And every single healing was something you could not verify. They either healed them of a smoking habit or healed them of inner ear problems. There was nothing you could verify. There were nothing like the okay. miracles in the New Testament. Here's what I want you to do, Mary. I want you to yep. give me your email address And I want to send you some material on this that's going to go into detail. I don't have really time on this program to go into so much detail. But I'm offering to you and to anybody else who will send me their email address. Maybe you could people can text it to me however they want to do it. I'll send them this material, and then we can can continue to discuss this very email or later after the program is over. How about that? Uh, Mary, how about if I call you after the program to get your email address? Would that be okay? Sounds good. Sounds just fine with me. Okay, thank you for your call. God bless you. Bye. And thank thank you. you for being so kind and how you presented what you believe, Mary. Thank you. Okay. Okay, Bye. Mary, thank you. Bye. Dan from Arizona, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Hi, how are you doing? I would just like to know what are your personal feelings about cremation? Dan, I personally feel like that cremation is authorized. I don't want to be cremated myself. I want to be buried, but I don't think it's a sin to be cremated. And and I'm going to do like I did uh, with the previous caller. If you would like more information on that or anybody else would like more information on that, I'd like to send you some information of why I believe that. Okay. Would that be okay? That'd be great. That'd be great. Now, Dan, how about if I call you, I've got your number. How about I call you after the program and get your email and we'll, and we'll, maybe I can send you something email or we can text or, or whatever is best. We'll get that information to you. How about that, Dan? That sounds fine to me. Thank you. Dan, thank you so much for your call, okay? I have a good evening. Thank you. Same to you, Dan. Phyllis Hello. from Washington, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yes, I have a question in regards to head covering for women. First Corinthians 11, okay. uh, 6 says it's a shame for a woman to be um, uh, shorn or shaven and let her be covered. Uh, and then mm-hmm. it says that every woman prays, she should, um, you know, she dishonors her head. And then, um, okay. and then, in, and then in verse 13, it says, judge for yourself. Is it proper or, you know, commonly it says here, but is it appropriate for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And, and then, um, I'm wondering also, is a woman's long hair considered a covering, or does she need to have an actual 
cloth or something over her head at all times. Okay, and that's your question? Yes, and then also in First Thessalonians 5.17, it says um, to pray without ceasing. So if we're to pray without ceasing, then we should have a head covering on 24-7. Is what okay, I let, me, let me start with First Thessalonians 5.17, then I'll work back to First Corinthians 11. First okay. Thessalonians 5.17, when it says pray without ceasing, and a lot of people misunderstand this, it doesn't mean that you pray every second of the day. If it did, that means it would be a sin to go to sleep. That's not what it's saying at all. It, it would be like this, Phyllis. Here's a faithful Christian that prays 10 or 12 times a day, and he does that for five years, and then he just quits praying and hasn't prayed for a month. See, he has stopped, he has ceased his regular praying. It's not talking about praying every second of the day, but it's talking about stopping regular prayer okay you follow me well i do phyllis you still there yes yes can you hear me yes ma'am go ahead okay well the thing is when you pray when i said 24 7 obviously a person's going to sleep but you might wake up in the middle of night and you need to pray and you're going to have your head uncovered what i'm trying to say is uh i don't want to be you know honorary about this but I want to do the right thing, too, and I believe the Scriptures, that's what, you know. Okay, that's good, Phyllis. So pray without ceasing does not mean every second of the day, okay? It means you continue to pray regularly, and if you stop that, you're in violation of that passage. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 11, what it looks like to me, the text is teaching. In the King James Version, it talks about covering in verse 5 and 6 and verse 13 and verse... 15 when it's talking about the hair. But if you were to read a newer translation like the American Standard, you one place would be talking about a veil, the other covering. It, and you would see there's two different Greek words. In verses 5 and 6, the word for covering in the Greek is kataklupto, or a form of it. When you get down to the hair being the covering, in verse 15, it's talking about a parabolaion, a completely different Greek word. Now, I don't think that necessarily proves that there are two different coverings, but it might clue you into the fact that there is. Now, what I believe, Phyllis, proves there are two different coverings in the passage is the fact that verse 5 tells the woman to be covered when she prays or prophesies, which indicates this covering, whatever it's talking about, is put onable and take on offable. If you pray, you put on the covering. If you're not praying, it's okay to not be covered according to verse 5. Verse 15, though, the long hair is given to her for a covering. That's something permanent. You can't put it on or take it off. So I believe there are two coverings taught by the passage, evidenced by the fact there's two different Greek words. And when in verse 15, what Paul is saying, he's not identifying the covering of what the covering is of the earlier part of the passage. What he's saying is, in the early part of the passage, he's saying the woman ought to be covered when she prays or prophesies and not the man. He's referring to a temporary artificial covering. And he's saying just like, and it's a consistency argument, Phyllis, just like when it comes to the permanent natural covering, the long hair, the woman is covered, not the man. So if the woman should be the one covered with the permanent natural covering, the long hair, he's arguing, therefore, when it comes to the temporary artificial covering, Praying or when praying or prophesying, the woman ought to be covered, not the man. You follow that, Phyllis? I would like to make one last comment here, please. Yes, go ahead. I've been to many, I've visited many churches. I've traveled around a lot in my life, and I have rarely found a church that actually where women do this. You know? Yeah. And I know of I, I know of some churches that do, and some ladies that do, and probably maybe I could put you in contact with them. 
you're right. Now, if you were to go back, and it doesn't make any difference what people practiced 100 years ago in this case. That isn't necessary to make them right. But if you were to go back 100 years ago, probably almost all the ladies in the churches would have practiced this. But slowly, it's fallen out of favor. That's what, that's what necessarily makes it right, the fact that it was practiced 100 years ago. It just shows you that over the last 10 or 12 decades, a lot of changing has been done, probably because of the equal rights movement. Now, you're going to have to evaluate for yourself, Phyllis, what 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 through 16 teaches. I'm not going to twist your arm. I can't force you what to believe. I suggest go back and read 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 carefully three times. And then maybe we could talk, and I want you to tell me what you think it means after reading it carefully three times, okay? And I'll, I'll try to call you after the program, and perhaps we can talk about it further some other time off the air, okay? Real quick, I've already made my decision, and I have read this and studied it, and I have okay. decided that I would. But to tell you the truth, it was really difficult because there wasn't a soul in the church that did it. No one did it. They didn't talk about it. But I didn't want to stand out, and I like to be free. I like my hair free and everything. But um, the thing is, I decided I'm going to do what God says to do, and I'm going to be an example, and I must obey. That's just all there is to it. We okay. Must obey. So, so you're telling me you read the passage, and you decided the covering, the veil was necessary. It was very difficult because the people in the church where you are weren't doing it, but you did it anyway because the text said it. Is that what you're telling me? went into the bathroom and I said, Lord, I can't do this. I just can't do it. But I said, I have to do it because uh-huh. what's more important? Is it more important what other people think or what the word of God says? And I said, Lord, it's what you say. And I, it's a matter of humility, frankly. It's a, kind of humbling, you know, but to wear um, something on your head. And um, But I did it for obedience and because I love the Lord and he's going to be number one. I made that decision. Phyllis, so, uh, you don't know yeah. how much I appreciate your courage. It is so hard to do what the Bible says when nobody else around you is doing it. Isn't it so hard? Yes, that's right. Our, our testimony will shine in the public if it yep. shines when the doors are closed and the lights are out, you know, and nobody's yep. there but the Lord and the Holy Spirit to tell you and talk to you, and he will listen. I- I find find the same thing is true with most of the people around here where I live that are Christians. They mainly do and and, and follow what they mainly practice in religion is not necessarily what the Bible says, but what the people around them that they consider to be Christians, what they do. So if the Christians uh, surrounding them do this particular thing, they'll do it. But if none of the Christians around them are doing it, it doesn't matter how clearly the Bible teaches we ought to do it. They're not going to do it either because they just can't believe that all these Christians around them are not practicing the Bible correctly or because they don't have the courage to do what the Bible says because all the people around them, none of them are doing it. And I appreciate your courage, Phyllis. Thank you for calling in. Thank you so much. Phyllis, I'm going to try to call you sometime this evening after the program so we can uh, talk further if you don't mind. Okay. Watch out for a call from the 256 area code so we can talk further if you don't mind, Phyllis. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for your call, Phyllis. <laughs> Peter from British Columbia. Go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Hi, Pat. It's Peter M. from British Columbia. Yeah. I, how I you doing, wanna, Peter? I, good, good. I just want to start out and say that 
Um, I encourage anybody that wants a one-hour Bible study to reach out to you because it is really, really helping me understand what's in the Bible. I, I, just, I just encourage anybody that wants to do that. My, my other comment I just want to mention is I just finished reading the book of Ezekiel, and from chapter 40 on to the end, it talks about the new temple and the new city. And Hey, Peter, talks- Peter. I got to go off the air in 30 seconds. So okay. when we let's talk about this with our next Bible study or or involve okay. this in our next Bible study. OK, hey, I, I got I, your I, question I, over text and we'll talk about it. OK, thank you. OK, I better bye. let you go. Thank Thanks, you. Peter. OK, I want to thank Peter for recommending and what Peter's talking about. If you would like a free one hour phone Bible study, I'm willing to study with you totally free of charge whenever it's convenient for you. Free one hour phone Bible study. Call or text me at 256-682-9753. The number to call or text, 256-682-9753 if you want a free one-hour phone Bible study to your convenience.